All right, we'll kick into it. Welcome back, guys. Um, so I'm mixing things up a little bit today and hopefully bringing in something new with Brojo in general, which is at this stage, I'm looking at every second webinar being more of an ask me anything interactive type thing. Well, interactive if people show up and if not more me answering questions that people have sent through, uh, specifically our contributing members. Thank you guys. So <clears throat> I wanted to do a bit more of that, answer your real questions rather than just sort of ranting on topics that I think you want to hear about. Go straight to the source. So we've got that today. We've got one, two, three, four people have sent through questions today. I'll get through as many as I can. Um, starting with the contributing members and moving on to the others who have sent stuff through after that. And I'm just going to freestyle. I haven't made any notes or anything. I'm just going to speak my mind, give opinions, and uh, if and when other people come on the call, I'll ask them to give their feedback as well. Cool. Let's kick straight into it. <clears throat> so we've got mostly uh, relationship social type questions today. First one's from Henry. So he says, I'm unable to control my desire to let go of one ex-girlfriend. The reason why, because when we were together, I had the most incredible emotional connection and the most meaningful relationship. And so far, I haven't met any other girl, including girls that I had a relationship with after her. I'm guessing he's saying, so far, I haven't met any other girl that it feels like that with. Do you have any tips to move on easier? <clears throat> All right, so lots of different things coming up there. There's definitely some sort of grief. There's clinging to something. There's perhaps a lack of acceptance around something being over. And there's genuine desires coming through. So I'll just kind of spitball this as we have a look at it. So letting go of an ex, let's start with that as a general concept. Uh, getting over a breakup. I, I recommend anybody struggling to get over a breakup talk to coach Mike Wells. That's one of his specialty areas. Uh, and he's kind of the master of that. One of the things I'd say about it is I, I, I just did a podcast, just recorded a podcast on acceptance. And when that comes out, have a listen to that because it applies directly to this. The idea of clinging to something that no longer exists, something that you can't control. And an ex is a great example of that. So in your mind, you really want to be with them. And yet, if things were good between you, you would be with them. So there's this, <clears throat> there's some sort of, sort of fantasy fiction happening here. This idea that you could be good together. And it's, it gives you this kind of hope. And it's that disastrous kind of hope, that hope that eats you alive. You know, I come from a stoic philosophical background and, you know, they, they think hope's kind of a bad idea. And I do too. Because it doesn't line up with reality. If you and this ex were meant for each other and a great fit, we wouldn't be having this conversation because you'd be with her. Something stopped it. I can't remember if I actually know the person he's talking about, but I think sometimes the hardest ex to let go of is one where it feels like circumstances pulled you apart, not like a clash of personality. Uh, what Mark Manson calls friction, 
So you guys get along great together. You've got a great connection, but let's say you live on the other side of the world from each other or the financial situation prevents you living near each other or there's, you know, some family member intervenes so strongly that you can't get over it. Something like that. Some external force breaks you up. Or so it would appear. See, I have a theory there's no such thing as a breakup caused by external circumstances unless they are really strong, like somebody uh, gets sent to a prison and you're not allowed to visit legally or um, somebody is kidnapped and unable to leave or something like that or somebody is so financially strapped and both partners are so financially strapped that they can't even get on the phone to each other. I'd accept that as maybe an external reason. But from my own experience, my girlfriend or my wife now is from the other side of the world. And initially her family was really against us being together. And there was just tons and, and I was financially strapped when we first got together. And so there's just tons of stuff working against us. And yet we made it work because of how strong our connection was. We fought battle after battle. You, you have no idea what we've been through. <laughs> to be together the whole universe was against us and through a million obstacles in our way and we smashed through them all you might feel that friction broke you up you might feel that some external force has prevented you from being together but the fact is if you really wanted to be together you would probably find a way to make it work which means if you didn't one or both of you wasn't really into it and i don't mean that you didn't like each other or even love each other. It's just it wasn't strong enough to be worth fighting whatever fight needed to be fought. The reason I bring this up, I don't know why you guys broke up, but <clears throat> if you were meant to be together, you'd be together. So something didn't work. Something clearly wasn't right between the two of you. So if this idea that it could be or should be is a fantasy because it doesn't match reality, you see. If you guys were supposed to be together, you'd be together. If you're not together, then you're not supposed to be. Now, it doesn't mean maybe in the future you couldn't be, but this is in my personal anecdotal experience. It's been very rare in, from what I've seen for people who break up to get back together again, and it works long term. Generally, there seems to be some fundamental cause of breakups that uh, personality base, which means the couple will never work is they're like an opposing magnet. They just can't get together and make it last. <clears throat> now that's just anecdotal experience. I might be wrong. I don't know the statistics on that, but I think in general, the, the couples that make it very long term never break up. It's as simple as that. What I think is happening here with you, Henry is she is symbolic. She's a symbol of a great connection, of a meaningful relationship. And you're experiencing transference, as it's called. So you think she is the only one you could have that with, when in reality, she just represents having it. She's a kind of symbol of, of that good feeling. And because you yearn the feeling, and the feeling's been attached to her, you think you yearn her, when really, you yearn a deeper, meaningful relationship. And you're getting confused that she is the kind of the, the queen of that. She's the representative of that. Well, really, she was just one person 
you had it with. One person who you had it with, but it couldn't last. You know, I did a video a while back about the difference between <clears throat> attraction, connection, and relationship. And it sounds like you had attraction and connection with her, but the relationship didn't work. So she represents what great attraction and connection looks like, but she does not represent what a good relationship looks like. If she did, we wouldn't be having this conversation because you'd be with it. So that's one of the key things to keep in mind. It's fine to yearn for that, that, that great emotional connection, but understand she doesn't actually represent a meaningful relationship. She represents attraction. She represents great connection. There's a lot to be learned there. Like what did you guys do together to create such a great connection? What did you do differently with her that you don't do with other girls and so on? You know, there's some lessons to be learned. Maybe you're more honest with her. Uh, maybe you guys run into more of the same stuff than you usually are with girls you chase or something, right? There's some lessons there. But she is not a good lesson as to a long-term relationship, okay? Because you guys couldn't make it work. Now, it could be partly you as well. Maybe you at that time was not relationship ready. Maybe you both weren't. And maybe you both are now. I don't know. But there are over 3 billion women on the planet. She's not the only one that this can occur with. That would be statistically laughable. There's no way this can only happen with one girl. You know, there's that kind of mystery <clears throat> belief that a lot of people have that there's one person for everybody. If that was the case, the human race would have died out a long time ago, right? It, it, we, we, there's 7 billion of us. When I was younger, there was only 3 billion of us. We clearly have pretty low standards in terms of who we'll have kids with, right? That's, that's just statistically evident. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone who's together having kids has found the one. It just more means the one is a, a myth. We, we can connect with a lot of different people in our lives and we can make it work. And in my experience, especially with my clients and everything, the more confident you are, the broader range of people you can connect with because confidence and connection goes hand in hand. The more shameless and honest you are, the more people will be able to connect with you. It's really straightforward. So you, You've got to, you're, you're being tricked by your brain into thinking that she's the one when really she's just an example of a good connection. She's not an example of a good relationship or you'd be together. And that's all she is. And it, it's time to just sort of separate her from the desire to have a great connection in a relationship. Right now you think to desire that is to desire her. Now, it's easy for me to say because I'm not feeling what you're feeling and she means nothing to me. And so I can pontificate on all this rational nonsense. And yet I know that if I were you and yearning her, it wouldn't even help that much to, to, to have this conversation. You'd still feel that strong. The thoughts would pop into your head. The fantasies would come unbidden into your mind about her, the, urges to contact her or whatever it is that's occurring to you will still happen because that's all happening in the emotional brain. You can rationally know she's obviously not the one. Otherwise you'd be together. That's just simple, you know, measurement of evidence, but the emotional brain's not that clever. It just goes, but I want her. And, and, and it doesn't, it's like a child, you know, we've all got that brain right in the middle, fucking in the center there talking shit all the time. One of the problems 
that I think is occurring. You mentioned that you kind of can't seem to have this with any other girl. <clears throat> and what I see is something dark happening under the surface, which is your yearning for this ex is actually a defense mechanism. You probably compare new girls to her in either a very conscious or a subconscious way. And because they're new and they haven't even had a chance to build a connection with you yet, they lose compared to her. Right? And then there are others who you actually gave a real shot to, but they weren't a great connection, so they lose as well. And you start to build up an image in your head that she's the only one this could happen with because all the other ones compared to her uh, aren't as good. But that comparison is a trick. And I'm going to throw out a kind of an assumption or, or shall we say, a swing, swing in the dark kind of thing. I believe that this yearning for her is actually designed to prevent you from getting intimate with other people. I did a video a while back on the fear of abandonment. <clears throat> and, and people who have the fear of abandonment often call the fear of rejection, but abandonment's more accurate. They'll chase after things because that's actually quite safe to do. You can't really get hurt chasing after something. I mean, you can get rejected, but you can't get abandoned, which is different. You chase after something, and then when it starts to get real, when the person reciprocates, when they actually want you too, all of a sudden you lose interest. And you do this kind of back and forth. Like, I want you. Uh, nah, nah, I don't want you. With guys, it's often uh, the tipping point is sex. You chase someone until you have sex with them, and then you wake up with them the next day like, Oh my God, how am I going to get this person out of my life? And all that yearning is gone. And it's weird. You're like, but they're a cool chick. Why am I suddenly apathetic about it? Like I was so into her and now I'm so not. Because <clears throat> for a lot of guys, sex is the most symbolic reciprocation. We can't be sure a girl likes us until she has sex with us. And so we yearn her until that happens. And then when it happens, we go, oh shit, she actually likes me. And we actually have a kind of subconscious panic. Like, well, if this goes anywhere, she could hurt my feelings. She could abandon me. Let's cut that off before that happens. And one way, you know, one-itis, having crushes all the time, yearning after an ex, they all have that same kind of flavor to it where you idealize this woman that you can't get as a way of rejecting all the women you actually could be with. She becomes a shield that protects you from intimacy. Okay. It's quite complicated psychologically, isn't it? Uh, but I used to do this all the time. I would just, I'd spend all my time and effort in the friend zone with a girl who clearly I didn't have a chance with. If I just looked at it rationally, it would be obvious. But I chose not to look at it rationally. I was always kind of living in hope. Even when she'd be talking about other guys she's dating, I'm still sitting there like, and after that guy, it's my turn. You know, it's ridiculous. But at the time it felt really logical. And yet what I didn't see was all this time and energy spent on these girls that nothing was going to happen with prevented me from pursuing other girls. I'd even developed this kind of loyalty to these unattainable girls. You know, I'd, I'd find out a girl liked me or something. And I'd say, well, no, no, I'm working on things with girl A over here. You know, I better, I don't want to offend her or disappoint her or anything like that. And so I, my obsession with one girl was actually secretly a defense mechanism against real connections with other girls. It prevented me from getting intimate. And I think from the sounds of things, Henry, you're comparing new girls with this ideal perfect angel 
it probably isn't realistic. Like if I was to meet your ex-girlfriend, I probably wouldn't think of her as being as amazing as you think she is um, because she's probably just a normal person. <clears throat> but you've, you've idealized her. You turn her into this perfect angel and then she's become a shield that stops any other girl getting close. Any other girl getting close enough to hurt your feelings. Any other girl getting close enough to abandon you and leave you. Maybe like this ex did. You know, maybe you don't want to repeat the trauma of losing her. And so the best way to do that is prevent even getting close to somebody. I don't know if I've given you any tips to move on easier. I'm trying to, you know, I've got an idea or a theory that truth is the answer to everything. And looking at something more and more accurately provides answers naturally. So maybe as you hear me talk, some answers have occurred to you, though I haven't really given you any. But in terms of tips to move on easier, the, the fundamental is putting your effort and energy into connecting with other girls. See, every time, every second spent thinking about your ex, contacting your ex, dreaming about her, is a second that you're just sitting still, eyes in the back of your head, and you're not talking to other girls, and you're not meeting new people. Right? That second stolen from other connections there. Okay. And because of that, you, you're, you're setting yourself up to fail. You're going, I can't meet any other girl who's like her. I'm like, well, you're not meeting other girls like her. You know, you're not, you're not giving yourself a chance. Let's say you have to meet and connect with a hundred girls before you'll find one where the connection is really good. Well, how many have you met and connected with this week? You know, there's a bit of a numbers game to this. You're not going to have a great connection with everyone. There's only a small percentage of people that we each authentically connect with. And while it's a small percentage, it's still literally millions of people around the world that we can connect with well, and at least hundreds of thousands that we could have a really meaningful connection with. But the percentage, you know, sort of per head is, is quite low. So like if you're living in Auckland, I know you are, there's just over a million people there maybe 10,000 of them would be a great connection for you. But to meet that 10,000, you might have to meet 100,000. You dial that down, you might have to meet 100 people to find one, you know? So rather than trying to like get the ex-girlfriend out of your head or doing some sort of mental manipulation to reduce your desire for her, Take all that energy and give it to somebody else, somebody else where something could actually happen. And it will feel like a risk to you. You'll feel like you don't have real desire or interest in certain girls that you actually have a chance with. And you've got to kind of push through that. You've got to see that for what it is, which is this is fear. You're afraid of this actually working out. You're afraid of success. Most of us are not afraid of failure, though we think we are. We're not afraid of being alone. We're afraid of being with someone who could break our heart. You know, and so we we complain and we and we moan about not finding someone, and yet when we're given a chance to meet people, we sabotage it, and that shows you what you really want, which is to not take a risk. The cure to your ex-girlfriend is to create real connections with other women, real authentic connections, and help you realize a couple of things. One is that your ex is not the ideal princess that you've made her out to be in your mind. If she was, you'd be together. And secondly, is that you can have this kind of connection with quite a few different people. There isn't just one. There's many. 
And all you have to do is open yourself up to the risk of it not working out long term. There's a thing that I had to come to terms with in my head. I was okay with attraction. I was finally okay with connection, but relationships still scared me. And I realized the problem was it's a commitment. I'm scared of this, where it's going, the longevity of it, partly because of loss of my own freedom. I thought I'd somehow lose my own freedom. After getting married, I can see it's the opposite. I'm more free than I ever was. Uh, that doesn't mean I have a typical marriage, but I've made it work that way. But the second thing is there is no relationship that's going to last forever. I had to get my head around that. Like every relationship comes to an end. And I had to be okay with that. I had to know that's what I'm getting into willingly. I'm not like rolling the dice like hopefully this one will last forever. It's like, no, it won't. It definitely won't. I've said this before, the best possible case scenario is one of us dies first, right? That's the longest term relationship you can have is where the partner dies, which is a horrific experience, right? And I had to come to terms with that. I'm like, the best way this can end is one of us dying first before the other one while we're still together. And every other way it can end is premature to that. You know, we break up, we no longer see things the same way. Somebody cheats, whatever. There's, it's going to end somehow. And the best way it can end is somebody dying. And I have to be okay with that and, and realize that's actually not so bad. That's the price we pay. It's like you buy a nice car, you know, that car's going to break down one day. The car doesn't last forever. And you accept that you go, I'll enjoy it while it lasts. You start eating, you know, I used to get, uh, I still do sometimes, if I'm eating a really delicious meal, I get depressed about halfway through because I realize I'm going to finish soon and it's going to be gone. I used to have this ritual of getting stoned and eating Subway sandwiches, chicken and bacon with ranch sauce. And after the first six inches, I'd get sad because the second six inches meant the end. You know, the sandwich didn't last forever. It sounds ridiculous, but that's a kind of thing. That's a small scale version of what I'm talking about. We get scared of getting into a relationship because deep down we know it will end and it will end painfully if we love the person. You just got to sort of say to yourself, okay, that's the price I'll pay then. I'd rather have that pain as a payment for the pleasure of being in a relationship than the pain or the pleasure of being single. And that's a choice you need to make. Like some people actually would choose being single. They say actually the pain of ending a loving relationship isn't worth being in one. And the, the loneliness or whatever that occurs from being single isn't that bad. I'd rather have that. And that's fine. There's, there's nothing morally wrong with that choice. I mean, the population's big enough, right? If you don't want to have a family and kids, you have my fucking support. So, You've got to decide which one you want. I had to come to a conclusion. I'm like, yes, like I had to imagine Lucy dying and dying way before I thought she was going to, you know, dying in a couple of years and going, you know, that would crush me. So it's being with her worth being crushed at the end. And the conclusion I came to was yes. That doesn't include the kind of ending that we're most scared of, which is the other person stops loving us. And we still love them very strongly, you know, um, or they betray us or they turn out to not be someone who we thought they were and, and our whole world gets shaken up. But again, you got to ask yourself, is that worth it for a deeper, meaningful connection? Is it worth taking the risk? 
I know I'm getting kind of deep on uh, the concept of relationships here, but I don't think you're really obsessed with your ex. That's the point I'm making. The ex is just a symbol. I don't even really care who she is because if it wasn't her, you'd just fantasize about somebody else in place of her. The thing you'd be yearning would be the same, which is you're yearning a real connection. And, and I think you have a great desire for a long-term meaningful relationship. I, I fucking love being in a relationship. I, I didn't see that coming, you know, to have a partner. She, she makes me better. And frankly, I'd rather be single than have a lesser relationship than that. So I wouldn't be in a relationship just to be with someone. Like if they didn't support me and we didn't have the same values and they didn't make me a better person, I'd rather be single. You know, but Lucy is far better than being single. And that was just a simple calculation for me. I'm like, life is so much better with her than not. So that's an easy one for me. And it's so good with her that it's, I'm willing to pay the price of it ending. However it ends, however heartbreaking the end is, um, I'm going to gamble on it. It's worth it. I've, I've already accepted it. It's a very stoic kind of approach. Like it's definitely going to end and it's going to end badly. And I'm willing to pay that price to have all the good stuff before that, to have all those memories and all those experiences. So again, coming back to the question, tips to move on, take all that energy yearning and dwelling and meet new people and open yourself up to connecting with them. You know, you go on a first date with someone that's not that great, still go on a second date with them because you can't be sure you don't like them. It might just be your brain doing that apathy thing to try and block you off, trying to prevent a connection. Try and bust through that wall and see if they are actually good for you first. Okay. There's a lot of fears going on here. You probably have a fear of ending things with people, whether you end it or they ending it, you know. So be prepared to end it. Be prepared to reject people. Be prepared to break up with them. You know, get yourself prepared for that. And then you'll finally be able to connect with others. And once you start connecting with others, that, that yearning you have for your ex, I'm sure it will go away because she is just a symbol and that need will be being met by somebody else. You know, hope that helps. You got my contact details. If I've missed anything, you let me know. All right. Question one, done and dusted. And I've got to say thank you, Henry, for sending that through. You guys, the more vulnerable and honest your questions are, the better I can help you, if I can help at all. And uh, it takes courage just to send that through, especially to know that I'll be doing this kind of publicly. So I appreciate you guys for having the balls to do that. It's, it's tough to do. It's tough to ask for help. I fucking struggle with it. All right, next one's from Elijah. <clears throat> He says, I find myself using my success or lack of success with women as a guideline for loving myself or for seeing if I'm living right. I feel if I have healthy experiences with women, when I'm, then I'm doing it right. If they're unhealthy, I'm doing it wrong. What are your thoughts? All right, this is a classic. So there's some things going on here that I think are healthy and some that I think are unhealthy. First and foremost, judging who you are and how good you are as a person based on your success with women is a horrendous idea. Terrible, terrible idea. Because there's no validity to that measurement. For example, if I am very unsuccessful with unhealthy women, that would actually be a good thing, right? 
And if I'm very successful with unhealthy woman, that would be a bad thing. Like when I was in my first pickup phase, I started doing what you might say is quite well with women. I was proud of myself for that. Years later, when I look back, the women I did well with were crazy. They were crazy women. They were psychologically unwell. You know, it wasn't obvious. They're just like party girls that you meet at the club kind of thing. There was nothing that obvious, but you get to know them. You're like, man, this shit. Wow. She is very low confidence and she's got a lot of problems going on. So how can I consider myself to be doing well if I'm very attractive to very unhealthy people? Right. And if I was now, you know, nowadays, those kind of girls would probably find me boring, repulsive. And that's actually a good sign. But in the end, even if those signs are measurable, it, it's just really shaky ground to measure who you are based on other people's reactions. It's, you're setting yourself up for a number of disasters there. One is, of course, you're training yourself to measure who you are based on other people's opinions and reactions, which means you're setting yourself up to care a lot what other people think, which anyone will tell you is not associated with confidence. And you're also putting yourself in the hands of others. You're making yourself easily manipulated. You're putting your confidence in their control and they can do a lot to you with that control. So this is a terrible way to measure how good you are as a person in general. However, health, you said, I feel if I have healthy experiences with women, then I'm doing it right. Now this is where it becomes interesting because healthy experiences and success are not the same thing, or at least I don't think they are with the way you're putting it. Doing well with a woman where she likes you long-term and sleeps with you and wants to be your girlfriend isn't necessarily a healthy experience. That can happen in a very disastrous way. That can happen with an abusive relationship. That can happen with a psychopath, whatever. So being successful with women isn't the same as having a healthy experience. You could have a 30-second conversation with a woman that ends badly, and that could be a healthy experience because you are living by your values and having integrity and you're essentially rejected by someone who is a bad fit for you. That would be a very healthy experience. Nothing's gone wrong there. That's really good. That's good stuff. You're on track. So it's important that you separate success from health. In, in the terms that success being this external outcome thing, where if a girl likes me, that's success, even if she's a total nutter, right? Unhealthy would be, say, being successful with a girl who's bad fit for you. Um, unhealthy would be being successful through deceptive means, lacking integrity to gain success, you know, sleeping with someone under false pretenses, using all that pickup bullshit. So you've got elements of a good idea for measuring yourself in there, but I think given the way you've worded it, worded it you're probably doing it in a way that doesn't actually measure your self-worth and your confidence very accurately. What I'd suggest, and I suggest this for anybody, when it comes to measuring yourself, and I think I've already got some resources on this. I recently did one on how to measure confidence, I think, so maybe check that out, another webinar. It can't be based on other people. It must be based essentially on how well your behavior aligns with your values. 
right? How, how well you act according to your own philosophy. Okay. How, how close knit that is. There's a thing I call the authenticity gap. There's a person who you wish you were a philosophical ideal and the person you actually are based on the latest piece of behavior you just engaged in. The bigger that gap, the less confident you are, right? So confidence about closing that gap, about being who you wish you were, and understanding who you wish you were has nothing to do with external circumstances. It's got nothing to do with your success with women. You know, your ideal guy, it, it can't be designed like it's a guy who does well with women because a psychopath can do well with women. Uh, a guy who can afford prostitutes can do well with women. There's no sign of confidence there. There's no validity to that measurement. But maybe somebody who's honest with women, maybe someone who's courageous with women, maybe someone who's respectful of women. Now, those are things you can measure, and it doesn't matter who the girl is or how she feels about you, because it's all about you. I think what you're doing is you're measuring how they react to you, when you should be measuring how you react to them. You should be measuring how you act according to your values. Her. To, to make it really simple, if you want to measure your self-worth in the social field around your interactions with women and others, then really refine the measurement down to what you did and why you did it. Okay. Now, I don't know what your values are, so I'll talk about mine and the ones that I've found are correlated most highly with uh, healthy relationships. But honesty. So when you finish having a conversation with a woman, whether it went well or badly, doesn't matter. How honest were you? You know, how much did what you say and express represent who you really are and how you really feel and what you really thought at the time? How, how big is the distance between those two things? Were you basically an open book where what, what you see is what you get? Or were you putting on a performance and hiding the bad bits and so on? Because that's measurable. Because a really confident guy has nothing to hide. Why would he? He loves himself. Why would he lie? Why would he try to make you like him? He's already likes himself. So you can act as if that is already the case and make it true. I don't mean faking confidence, which is like putting on a show. What I mean is be as honest as a confident guy would be, and you'll be a confident guy. Okay. So if a conversation with a woman ends badly because you are super honest, that's a good thing. Okay. I mean, she was a bad fit for you, at least right now. And you prioritize your integrity over her approval. That's what confident people do. That's what someone with loving, someone who loves themselves would do that. Someone who loves themselves would never allow somebody else's approval to take priority over their own. Courage. Courage is a huge element to self-worth in the social sphere. How bold were your interactions with women? You know, did you go up to the woman that you're intimidated to talk to or did you take the easy way out? Did you push forward and lead or did you become passive and let them lead? What is it that you're doing? How do you measure courage? Did you do what you're afraid to do? Because even if it ends badly, but you're like heart pumping, working through fear, that's a win. You're on top of the game there. If it goes well, but you're playing it safe, that's not a win. That's, that's not a reason to love yourself. You haven't earned it, right? You've just, it's kind of pathetic. 
you can't earn self-respect and self-acceptance by taking the easy way out and playing a game and using other people's words. How are you supposed to earn self-respect doing that? But if you're like, fuck it, I winged it, it didn't go well, but I was all me. That's how you earn self-respect. But the problem is, you know, some people, they can live with integrity, but because they're measuring external outcomes, they don't build confidence. They don't give themselves credit for having integrity, which is a really important element to this. So when you're journaling at night, you need to be very clear, what am I, what am I measuring? And measure integrity. Did I live by my values? Yes, yes, not there. Need more of this. Yes, there. And you measure and you go, okay, I'm pretty much on track. And that's where confidence builds, where you see yourself living with integrity and you go, fuck, I like this guy. He's a good guy. I'd want my son to be like this guy. I'd want my daughter to date a guy like this. You know, that kind of measurement. <clears throat> but if you look back and over the day, you know, I'll give you a great example where the shift happened for me. A uh, story I've told before. I took a girl home from a bar. Now, when we're at the bar, all I did was use like pickup technique on her, which was this cocky, funny thing. I basically just took the piss out of her all night, made fun of everything she said, disagreed with her on everything. It's a classic tactic, you know, and she just loved it because she was psychologically unstable. Confident girls don't like this game, by the way. So I was doing that and she came all the way home with me and she was just a nightmare. Right? She was, she broke some stuff at my friend's house. She was just, I shouldn't have had any interest in her, but she was slightly physically attractive and I just wanted validation and approval. Got her home to my place and it was clearly like, it's on, it's time to sleep together. But I just couldn't do it. I couldn't. It just felt so wrong to me because I hadn't earned this girl in my bed. I'd played a game. I'd manipulated her. I'd used other people's tactics. They'd taught me. I was basically being somebody else and I tricked her into being there and she wasn't even the kind of person I like anyway. The whole situation was just fucked. How could I love myself for putting myself in that situation? Now, on paper, I'm winning. I'm successful with this girl. She wants to have sex with me. But inside, the other measurement system was, you know, all red alert. Just this is so fucking wrong. And that's when I knew that getting girls was not going to make me love myself because the way I did it didn't, didn't score me any real confidence points. It gives you an instant gratification. You smile for a couple of days and then the depression kicks in again. And you have to get high again. It's not a real system. So what I'd say is rather than using your success or lack of success with women as a guideline, use how you interact with them as part of your guideline. How well did you live with honesty, courage, respect, whatever your values are, not just mine, but yours. And measure yourself according to that. How they react to that is almost irrelevant. Okay. Unless it just gives you more opportunities to act with your values. Like if a girl rejects you harshly, did you respond respectfully and philosophically? Or did you have a revenge like tantrum? You know. So even in a rejection, you've got a chance to impress yourself. Like if a girl says, oh my God, I'm so not interested in you. You can be like, all right, have an awesome day. Thank you for your time so far anyway. And you can kind of be the bigger man and not, not kind of go, well, fuck you, bitch. In which case you'd, you know, lose yourself again. So no matter how a girl treats you, 
there's an opportunity for you to build confidence. She doesn't have to like you. In fact, in the moments where someone definitely doesn't like you, there's a chance for you to really live with self-respect and courage and acceptance. You know, some of the harder values to live by. So I hope that helps. And I, I think the main thing I'd say is check out the webinar I did a little while back on how to know if you're becoming more confident. And we talk about some more measurement um, techniques in there. Um, yeah. Let me know how you get on with that. Get back to me and let me know how you feel about that answer. Cheers. All righty. Next we have Alex P. <clears throat> um, all right, so I'll read through this. It's a bit of a long one, but uh, pretty much under the same genre so far of working with relationships. So Alex says, I've been trying to meet girls at school, trying to upgrade my texting skills. So I've got a red flag right there, but we'll come back to that. I've been having difficulty because I feel like whenever I go up to a girl after class, tell them that I think they are pretty and proceed to talk to them, it seems to go really well. Then after that, seven out of eight of them avoid me and try not to talk to me. Feeling this rejection, I've taken a little break from going up to girls after class. I suppose this might be normal, but I want to increase my success rate. Regarding this, I feel like my interactions are very straightforward where we kind of talk about our passions, but I'm struggling to make them laugh and make it more of a fun experience. Relating to this, I am trying to be more interesting with my texting and conversations. I struggle to find the balance between being nice and helpful and perhaps joking with them. How can I work on being more funny and not just focusing on being helpful? How can I tell girls I think they're cute without them avoiding me and feeling like I just want to get in their pants or something, which is my hypothesis of why they're avoiding me. So actually my last couple of answers touch on some of the stuff going on in here, but basically you're trying too hard. Simple as that. You are trying to make girls like you and because that's your intention, everything else is sabotaged by that intention. Okay, because that's neediness. And neediness is repulsive. It doesn't mean you're repulsive. We can all be needy and we can all be repulsive. But particularly to high quality, confident women looking for a partner, they've got no time for neediness. None whatsoever. Because they can find a confident guy. Why would they waste their time with one who's being really needy? So on one hand, you're doing bold things. On, on paper, you're doing some actions that are great, like, telling girls that you're attracted to them directly and just, you know, going up and meeting as many as you can and working on your social skills. There's nothing wrong with any of that. It's just why you're doing it that's sabotaging you. Imagine that neediness is a smell, okay? You're going up to a girl hoping she doesn't reject you. You reek, right? You're, you're, you're like... Uh, you're, it's just terrible. It's like the sweaty ball sack of a rugby player after a match. Imagine that's the smell you're putting out. And that's why they don't text you back. And that's why they avoid you later on. Now they're polite to you when you first come up to them because you've trapped them in a conversation and they're nice people. They don't want to be rude. <clears throat> or maybe they genuinely do like you in the kind of heat of the moment before they have a chance to cool down and think about it. But that smell is there and they know that smell. These are women. They've been hit on every day of their life since they were like six, you know. They, they know the smell. They know what it means. They know what it leads to. They know the kind of guys who smell like this and what those kind of guys are like in a relationship. 
and they're very fucking wary of the smell. And sometimes that's to their detriment. Some guys are really needy and smelly, but are actually great guys once they get over it. And the girl misses out on that guy because she's put off by the smell. But it doesn't really matter because if you can't deal with the smell, then you don't get a girl, give a girl a chance to meet you and really get to know you. And you've got, to, you've got to look honestly at your own intentions. If you're going up to a girl just trying to get with her, you know, you came to that hypothesis. Maybe it's because it's partly true. I mean, maybe you, there's some guys who are like, oh, look, I'm not just trying to get laid. I'm not just trying to get into their pants. And they genuinely believe it. And very few of them are actually truthful, as in even subconsciously, that's not what they're trying to do. But assume you are, because you're a guy. We are guys and we're trying to get laid. And even when we talk ourselves through this kind of rigmarole of moral relativity, we try to talk ourselves out of believing that that's what we really want. You know, it just becomes this complicated, needy mess. <clears throat> because if we really weren't needy for it, we wouldn't give a fuck how they reacted to us. We wouldn't worry about being rejected. We wouldn't be trying to improve our texting game. We'd just be talking to people. And some would like us and some wouldn't, and we'd just let that happen. So you've got, you've got to face the dark truth about your neediness in this situation. It's strong. Now, that doesn't actually mean you have to stop doing anything that you're doing. It just means you need to do it for a different reason. Because right now, you're trying to get something. I don't know what it is. Maybe you don't even know what it is. I think it's you're trying to get them to like you. I think you're trying to get a positive reaction. I think you're trying to get a relationship. And I think no matter what you tell yourself, you are trying to get sex. Okay. And they can feel that they can smell it. And that smell is off putting. Now you come to the dilemma of, well, how do I interact with women in a way that could meet those needs without being needy for them? It seems like a paradox. I know. Like, how can I go up to a girl I like tell her I'm attracted to her without wanting that to go somewhere? The key is to understand wanting it to go somewhere is fine being needy for it to go somewhere is different. Wanting it to go somewhere is like, it would be great if it happens, but if it doesn't, that's fine. And we can see that you say like, you feel rejected when people avoid you. That means you're not fine with it. That means it's neediness and not wanting. So I might want someone to like me and I go up to them, it turns out they don't like me. I'm like, uh, what are you gonna do? You know, I thought that was a good one, but guess not, who's next? That's wanting. But if I go up to someone like, well, maybe if I just texted them differently, or maybe if I just worn something differently, or maybe if I changed my approach, they would like me. That's neediness. It's not letting go. Okay, well, fuck. You either like me as I am, or you don't like me. Like, I'm not going to try and force it. That's wanting. So basically what I think you're doing is you've got to kind of restart from why. Why are you talking to girls? What, what do you want? Okay. Do you even know? Because if you don't, then you're going to have something subconscious affecting you as you go through this and it'll sabotage you and you'll never see what it is. It'll be working at you from behind, fucking everything up and it'll look like a mystery. Like how the fuck does this keep happening? When in reality, somebody else watching you from the side who can see this thing would be like, no wonder that's happening. Right? Like I bet if I was to watch you and interact with you as you're doing this, I'd be absolutely sure as to why you're having the so-called low success rate. It would be about who you're choosing, why you're choosing them, how you're approaching them, why you're approaching them. 
you know, you're, you're being bold and saying that you find them pretty, but that's actually a judgmental thing to say. It's a, it's not the same as saying I saw you and I found you attractive, right? Which is much more vulnerable. You're just saying they're pretty, like it's a judgment. So there's lots of little elements coming through that tell me like, it's not like you're doing anything wrong necessarily. It's just the intentions you've got behind it cause it to come out a certain, a certain way. Like if I want to get laid and I tell a girl that if I'm needy for this to get laid and I tell a girl that she's pretty, she'll feel judged about her appearance. But if I'm confident and I don't care whether or not she likes me and I'm okay with going without sex forever, if, it, if need be, and I tell her she's pretty, she won't feel judged. She'll feel complimented. Now the words will be the same. And that's why this is so mystical. The words will be the same on paper. It looks like the same thing has happened, but they're worlds apart. One, I'm trying to get her vagina for my usage. And the other, I'm just giving freely. I'm just the guy who, if you go around the value of your life improves. They are two completely different guys saying the exact same words, but the meaning is so different. The intentions and the, the, subliminals are so different that they're completely different guys. Yeah. So I want to emphasize that you're not necessarily saying or doing anything wrong, but the why behind you're doing it is wrecking it for you. So how do we fix this? Cause this is fucking hard to fix at first. It's all good to tell yourself, you know what? I really, I don't care if it works out, but you won't believe it because you really want it to work out. So it makes it tricky. Um, <clears throat> and partly just doing it over and over again, uh, has some helpful effect when you stop becoming so attached to it. Seven out of eight girls rejecting you is actually great because after a thousand of those, you'll be so used to it. It'll just feel like nothing, but it's not the best way. Cause ultimately I'd say like you're here and the end goal is to be someone that doesn't care if he's rejected or not. He's just trying to give and interact. He just likes people and just connects with people and some of them like him back and connect back and some of them don't. He's fine with that. And then there's this gap in the middle between those two guys. It's kind of question mark. How does you, how do you transition from the guy you're being now, which is one who's trying to get needy to the guy who's trying to give and, you know, open to any reaction. There's a couple of things. One is don't just approach hot girls. Talk to anyone and everyone. Treat humans as humans rather than taking the special select group and putting them on the pedestal. Okay. You know, out of five people you talk to, one should be older than you. One should be a guy you're not attracted to. One should be a guy you're intimidated by. One could be a hot girl. One could be a girl you're not attracted to. You know, that was just an example, but not just five girls that you all thought were hot and would hope would jump on your penis. Right. Because that just creates this bizarre world where you only talk to people you're trying to get from rather than talking to people. Because I'll tell you what, the guys who are most successful with women aren't guys who are focused on women. They're guys who are socially confident. Okay. Anyone and everyone they can connect with. Right. So like, uh, even if you take the most sort of materialistic, superficial, someone like, uh, say Dan Bilzerian, He's got tons of guy friends. Okay. He's got connections with all sorts of people all over the world. Plus he has his eight model girlfriends or whatever, but he isn't just focused on girls. And when you see interviews with him, when he talks about his relationships, his thing is just be honest with them. And he doesn't care if they come or go. He knows that some girls are just with him for his money. He's okay. If 
for that. You know, he's, he's really okay with not being liked genuinely. Now, I'm not saying be like him, but it explains a little bit about his abundance with women. I mean, his money helps, sure, but he was doing pretty well before that. So you got to understand, like, women will like the real you when you don't care if they do or not. Okay, and you can't fake that. You can't pretend not to care. You can't, like, put on the cool act or be apathetic. That's not the same. Not caring is like, look, if you don't like me, then that's just the way it's meant to be. I'm cool with that. Have a good life. You're still a good person. I don't begrudge you for that. You know, it's like if someone doesn't like chocolate, you don't hate them for it. They just, they can't help it. It's a taste buds. They don't like chocolate. You're a certain flavor of chocolate. Some girls are not going to like that flavor, but they're not even going to taste that flavor if you smell bad. Okay. So you need to get rid of that smell. And ultimately that just comes from socializing with everyone abundantly. Okay. Just anyone is someone you can talk to. You know, start to show interest in people genuinely. Try to get to know them for who they really are. Fuck texting. Don't text anybody. Okay, texting should only be used to arrange face-to-face -face meetings. It should be a logistical tool, not an attraction tool. Okay, because if you're using it for attraction, then you're deep in the realms of manipulation, trying to write the perfect words that make her laugh and get her wet. It's just terrible. That that reeks. Your smell. Oh, my phone smells bad. What's going on? right? One of the things I'd say is a kind of a baby step or, or training wheels that you don't do forever, just temporarily, is give yourself permission. In fact, this, uh, oblige yourself to not take this any further. So when you meet someone, don't try to get their phone number. Don't try to see them again. I mean, they're in your classes. You'll bump into them maybe later anyway, but make it that they get this conversation for free. If you tell them they're pretty, they don't have to do anything about that. They don't, they don't owe you anything. You say, have a nice day, and you walk away. It's amazing. Like, it's a great cure for that smell. So you come up, you're reeking of neediness. You can't help it. It's just a feeling. You're a guy. You can't get rid of it. And you tell her she's pretty. And in her mind, she's like, oh, God, he's hitting on me. Here comes the phone number gambit. And, oh, God, I'm going to have to give him a fake number. Or I'm going to have to change my class. And then all of a sudden you're like, I just wanted to tell you that. Have an awesome day. Uh, maybe see you again sometime. Cheers. And you walk away and they're like, he didn't try to get anything from me. Maybe that smell wasn't there. What the fuck just happened? I've done that quite a few times on my own. Where even when I was feeling confident and non-needy, the girl was just suspicious because that's usually what's going on. Even if I don't appear to be needy, she assumes I'm just a good trickster or a smooth talker. And you can see it on her face, the suspicion as, as I'm talking, telling her she's attractive or whatever, and she's just going, you whatever, motherfucker. And at the end, I was like, you know, I just wanted to say that to you. Have an awesome day. And, and I walk away, and you can just see her like, oh, my God, that was real. And, and I've literally been chased uh, after that. I had one girl, I, I went up to her at a supermarket. I remember this very clearly. And I just sort of said, oh, look, I just want to say I saw you from down the aisle. I thought you absolutely gorgeous. Or I'd let you know. And she's like, uh, I've got a boyfriend. And I said, yeah, of course you do. You know, I mean, look at you. I just wanted to let you know. I'm not trying to hit on you. And she just instantly changed. She went from like dragon to angel. She was like, oh my God, thank you so much. It's the nicest thing, blah, blah, blah. She just changed instantly because what I was seeing at first was her defense mechanism against neediness. She was suspicious of me. She wasn't even really paying attention to me. I was just saying the kind of things that she associated with bad guys. 
And then I said something that showed her like, Hey, I'm for real here. Like you can have a boyfriend and never be available to me sexually. And I still like you and you get that for free, you know? Whereas what I see is like you say seven out of eight avoid you and try not to talk to you. I'm guessing after that, you also kind of reject them in your head. Like, Oh, well, they're not worth it then or whatever. Well, why do, why does somebody have to like you for you to like them? That's a weird condition. And it is a condition, which means you're not being unconditional. Unconditional is attractive. Conditional is needy. I'll be keen to hear what you think on my response here, <clears throat> whether this brings anything up for you. Um, there's plenty more resources on this whole topic in Brojo. But I'd say that the main thing here is before you go up to someone, just check in, why am I doing this? And how do I make sure it's not needy? So even if you're feeling needy, go, what would I have to do to ensure that this wasn't needy? That even if I'm feeling like, God, I hope she likes me, or I hope she wants to see me again, what can I do to make sure that that can ever be fulfilled? You know, um, like, I promise I won't ask for her number, or uh, I'll just tell her she looks nice, and then I'll tell her friends that they look nice as well, and that way they all get something, then I'll just walk away. Whatever it is that, you know, if you were needy, that kills it because you can't get the outcome. Think of this as training until it's real. You keep doing that until you're like, man, I really am just going to give her a nice day. I really want her to smile. I want her to have a better time than she's having. And I want to talk to that homeless guy because he looks lonely, you know, and I want to talk to that professor because he looks stressed. And, you know, you start seeing people wanting to give to them. And when that becomes real, then you can ask for a phone number and stuff because you'll be doing it for a whole different reason. Hope that helps, man. But I had to take a year off trying to get women in order to get over this. Okay, so I still approach them and talk to them and everything, but I didn't allow myself to get phone numbers. I didn't ask them on dates so that I couldn't be needy. I couldn't get anything from them. Um, and that was the year before I met my wife. Okay? Right at the end of that year, I found the person I'm now with. And I don't think that's a coincidence. <clears throat> All right, last one. I've got a two-part question from Chris here. Number one, successful people mention a lot that there's a series of practices and habits that have done on a daily basis will lead to success, such as writing and reviewing your goals daily, writing, reciting affirmations daily, visualizing yourself having achieved the goal, having a vision board, keeping a gratitude journal, to name a few. Which of these have worked for you and why? I'll have a look at what I do now because I keep what works for me. So certain things I do now, um, uh, ice cold shower in the morning. I do that to practice courage each day in case there's no other opportunities. And the reason I keep doing that is because it guarantees me discomfort. I've come to the very strong conclusion that Choosing discomfort is a very vital, it's one of the three most critical parts of building confidence is deliberately choosing to be uncomfortable. Not all the time, but enough to make sure you're never slipping into the comfort zone. And the cold shower does that for me. Now, it doesn't do it for everyone because some people can inure themselves to coldness or they have less sensitive nerves, but I'm hypersensitive. So every cold shower is pure torture for me. So every time I do it as an act of courage, I never want to do it. I'm always scared of doing it. And uh, so therefore I know I've been courageous every day that I do it. And that builds my confidence knowing that I can face the cold shower means I can face anything. 
I can face the confrontation with somebody. I can face the hassle. I can face standing up for myself because culture is worse than all those things. And I just did that, you know? <clears throat> so I do that one. Um, I've tried meditation. I don't really do that one anymore. Um, not because it didn't work necessarily. I found it helpful, but I'm always trying to combine activities. And what I mean by that is rather than do meditation uh, and physical exercise, say I'll try to do physical exercise that causes me to focus, in which case I'm doing both at the same time. So meditation is not on my list anymore, but the cold shower causes me to focus. Okay. And so it becomes meditative. Um, I don't believe for me personally much in the whole visualization process. Um, that doesn't mean it doesn't work for people. It's just, uh, it's very shady in terms of the science. You know, people like who do law of attraction and promote vision boards and all that, they tend to talk about how you'll manifest. They use that word manifest all the time, a word that I absolutely loathe, even though I've used it many times myself. Uh, because the science behind it is very hokey. Yeah, pseudoscience. And it can create an outcome-focused obsession. See, a lot of things, you when you say successful people, I think what you mean is people who have external successes that are approved of by others. They're rich, they're famous, popular, good-looking, that kind of thing. Uh, for me, success means living with integrity. So my daily practices are much more focused to that. So I have you know, a journal and I do some gratitude stuff in that, but mostly I'm measuring how well I lived with integrity. My goals are merely vehicles to help me live more with integrity. So I might have a goal, for example, of growing Brojo membership and I do have that goal, uh, but it's not really about growing Brojo membership. It's about me focusing on serving people, which is the, the activity that lines up with my values. So whether or not I grow Rojo, the amount that I want to is kind of irrelevant. It's just focusing on that keeps me aligned with things like honesty and service and other values that I have. Um, affirmations, definitely not. Uh, I'm really against affirmations. It depends what you mean by affirmations. So I do what's called meditations, uh, which is a stoic practice, which is I'll say something like, you know, if my internet dies today, then I'll just focus on writing my book or if Lucy's upset today, I'll care for her. It's not affirmations. It's prepping myself for things to go wrong and so that they don't shock me. And that's my kind of version. But kind of looking in the mirror and saying, you're a good person and you're awesome and that kind of stuff and you're going to be a rich person. All you're doing there is becoming obsessed with external outcomes. You're lying to yourself because you don't believe what you're saying. And you're also training yourself to have obsessive compulsive thinking. Now, OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, is people who become very strongly fused and attached to their thoughts, usually quite detrimental, harmful thoughts, and they become basically obsessed with them, and it harms them psychologically. If you're training yourself to focus on thinking, which is what affirmations do, think this, think this, think this, all you're doing is training yourself to be attached to thoughts, which ultimately is unhelpful. I'd say rather than doing affirmations, practice letting go of thoughts. You know, you have a thought like, oh, I, 
I wish I was stronger. It's like, ah, put the thought, I wish I was stronger on the table and just watch it dissolve. Okay, that thought's gone. And you just get rid of thoughts rather than holding on to them. Like, I'm going to be a strong person. So, well, you might not be. You might be hit by a car tomorrow and you'll never be strong. So, what are you talking about? Rather than becoming obsessed with external outcomes, which, (laughs) put it this way, most of the people who are chasing external outcome goals are already in the top 10 to 15% quality of life on the planet, right? It's very, uh, very rare for some poverty stricken African tribesmen living in a village in the middle of the desert to have vision board, right? It's, it's strictly a white privilege Western thing, right? The old vision board. So we're already killing it. You know, the fact that you have the internet, you've got a roof over your head, you've probably got healthy food to eat and clean drinking water, you're already smashing it outcomes-wise. As far as human beings go, you're in like the very top percentage. You're killing it. And if that doesn't satisfy you, then further goal achievement won't either, okay? Because your baseline just keeps coming up. No matter how many goals you achieve, your baseline will come to match it and call that normal and expect more, right? So my practices are more about letting go of that. When I talk about gratitude, I constantly go, look, I've got a roof over my head. You know, I don't have to fight for my meal. I'm not in a war-torn country. I'm pretty grateful for that. I have people who love me. Um, My health is enough to get me through to the end of the day. And even when it's not, I have the ability to endure pain. These are the things I'm grateful for. Not like, I hope I've got a lot of money. And I hope that tomorrow I'm even richer or that more people like me. What I'd say is if you're looking for practices that work well to keep you philosophically sound, check out the book, How to Think Like a Roman Emperor, um, about Marcus Aurelius by Donald Robertson. Excellent book. I read that on my honeymoon. Lots of great practices there on visualization, stoic style, and planning and goal setting. Now, there's nothing wrong with wanting to succeed in your goals. What I'm telling you is that being philosophical is actually the most effective way to succeed in your goals. You know, when I was trying to make money as a coach, I really struggled. When I switched over to trying to serve as many people as I could before I went bankrupt, suddenly I made money. But I wasn't focused on money anymore. Focusing on money, like whatever you chase runs away from you. It's a standard uh, kind of practice of the predator-prey relationship, you know. Every gazelle that's been chased by a lion has run away from the lion. And, and there's an element to this in everything we do. If you chase money, money seems to run away from you. If you chase girls, you seem to struggle with them. And you have to put in this huge amount of effort for a tiny reward. Whereas you ask anybody who, who is really successful, and you'll find that their intentions are different. Now, there are some people who chased and won because they're just highly skilled but they're still so needy that they don't get to enjoy what they caught. Whereas I've found in my own personal practice that the daily practices I engage in are all about letting go of outcomes and refocusing on my philosophy, refocusing on living with integrity, doing what I know is right and being the person I know I should be. And that seems to be the best possible way to get the outcomes that I also want. But if I do it to get the outcomes, it doesn't work. Okay, so if I'm like, I'll just be honest so that I can get a girl, my honesty won't have any positive effect on girls. But if I'm like, you know what, I'll be single forever if I have to, because honesty is the highest priority, 
then I'll be abundant with girls. Okay. But I have to let go of it. So what I'd, su what I'd suggest, because I'm reading between the lines with your answer that you're actually quite uh, attached to external outcomes and you're trying to find some sort of secret code to make them more likely to occur. It's letting go of them. Letting go of them does not mean not pursuing them. It doesn't mean you don't work and you don't interact with people and you don't work on your body. It just means you do it for a different reason. Okay. You don't talk to the girl to make the girl like you. You talk to her to practice honesty and courage. You don't reach out to a client to make more money. You reach out to serve them and improve their life. Right? You don't go to the gym to get six pack. You go to the gym to see how much pain you can tolerate. Right? To respect your body. You change. If you make your morning routine and your practice is about constantly getting you back to the philosophy of why you're doing this. Who is the guy you want to be? Even if he had nothing, who would he be? Right? And realigning yourself with that. The outcomes follow. You ask anyone. <clears throat> All right. Second question. Number two. Last one. By the way, on that, that first question, the, um, the enhanced values for integrity and the valued living courses cover what I'm talking about there and the more practical details as to how you do that. Number two, would you consider entering into a long-term relationship with a girl that you're very attracted to physically and emotionally and ticks most of your boxes, red flag there, in spite of her having an extensive sexual history in terms of quantity of guys she slept with, more than 50, and depth of sexual activity with them, anal sex, threesomes, etc.? If so, why? First and foremost, if we just reel back, this wouldn't be a tick box for me how extensive someone's sexual history is tells me very little about them okay because it could be anything from very unhealthy to very healthy so a girl might have a really promiscuous sexual history because she was abused as a child and this is her trauma reaction and she's just trying to like relive something whatever it could be a really fucked up reason why she's doing all this stuff or it could be she's sexually shameless. She doesn't give a fuck what society thinks. She wants to live life to the full. She has no shame around body parts or anything. She just does what she likes. Having sex is like having a good meal. Why wouldn't you? That's a very healthy, confident woman. And this other one is in serious need of therapy. And both could have the same history. So one of the key things I'd want to know is why? What drove her to have this extensive history? What difference does it make? Because the thing is, even if she is down the less healthy end of the spectrum, it doesn't mean that we can't have a good relationship together. I just need to know the truth. I need to know what I'm working with here. Is she a sex addict? Because that might have a harmful effect on our relationship. Or is she someone it doesn't matter who it's with as long as it's fun? Right? So she can be loyal. There's lots of things to consider here. But dialing back, I'm going to read between the lines again. First and foremost, you say, ticks most of your boxes. The fact that you have boxes to be ticked tell me that you, you have an unhealthy way of measuring whether or not you have a connection with somebody because there is no tick box to a real connection. Now, I think I just did a video on this, so check out YouTube channel uh, in the near future. Did I just do one? I think I just did one on the whole tick box idea, which, so I won't go into that here. Um... You've got, to, you've got to ask yourself, not what boxes need to be ticked, but 
what makes a good connection? What makes a great relationship? Because it's got nothing to do with them by themselves. It's all about you two together, right? I've seen two addicts in rehab form probably the best relationship I've ever seen. I've seen that multiple times. So two people, very unhealthy lives, falling apart, sexually promiscuous, using lots of drugs, no career. On paper, they don't tick anyone's boxes, but they met each other, they connected really strongly, and together they grew out of that disaster and built a life. You know, I saw one, one woman I was coaching um, was very sexually promiscuous and for all the wrong reasons. She was doing it for approval and validation from men because her father ran away, that kind of thing. And uh, she ended up giving a guy a place to stay at her, you know, a friend of a friend to let him stay at her house. And he was um, just out of jail for drug charges and he was a recovering addict. Four years later, they've got two beautiful children together. They've got a very successful business together. Loving, loving relationship. I've coached both of them. They're fucking delight. They were perfect for each other. They were both very broken when they met, but they fixed each other. It's probably the best way to put it. That together they grew strong. So on paper, they weren't a catch, but for each other they were great. And that's what a connection's about. And Chris, I think when it comes to women and connections, you're focused on things that look important but aren't, and because of that, you miss the things that are important. You also have a classic guy issue, which is an obsession with sexual history. Lots of guys have this maybe most, maybe a huge majority. I've already done a video on, on sexual jealousy, but we become threatened by our partner's sexual history. And we don't realize that that's what's happening. We think, oh, there's something inherently wrong about someone having a lot of penis inside them, you know, someone having a lot of experience, which doesn't really make sense. Okay. Uh, particularly because a most guys are happy to be sexually promiscuous themselves. It's just their partner who can't be more than them. So it's just a very like uh, double standard. Secondly, if there's some dirtiness to it, you've got to think like skin cells and everything change every few days. So there is actually no evidence. There's no marker of someone's sexual history on their body, unless maybe they've got like a sexual disease that's chronic. You know, somebody could sleep with a hundred people and three months later, if you put them to some sort of testing, you won't know, right? Their body's unaffected by that. So they're not dirty. That's just irrational to believe that they're fine. But, you know, and the third thing, of course, is the more sexually promiscuous somebody is, the better they'll be in bed. Simple as that. So you win, you know, I mean, if you want someone working for you at your company, do you want someone with 10 years experience or someone who just got out of university, right? I mean, if you want a partner who's going to be great in bed, do you want someone who's got a sexual history that teaches them everything they know about pleasuring a man? Or do you want someone who doesn't know what the fuck a dick is, right? So you've got these kind of weird things about sexual history, and a lot of guys do. And the real reason isn't because of the girl's dirty or anything like that. It's because of the threat. She liked other guys. A lot of guys, for some reason, have this fantasy about being the girl's only one being the one that only she is turned on by. She's only, the only one she's been with. A lot of guys fantasize about being with a virgin. For the life of me, I don't understand that because a virgin would be horrible in bed and it would just be such an awkward emotional and physical experience to have sex with them. Um, 
Whereas, you know, personally in my life, uh, the best sex I've had has been with very promiscuous people. You know, they know what they're doing. They're shameless. It's fun. You don't have to like keep the lights off. You know, you can do whatever you want, say whatever you want. You get to learn some shit. So there's no threat in that, but the threat is the reminder, like she's been attracted to other guys, which tells you that your problem with her sexual history isn't actually about her. It's about your own insecurities of, of your value as a partner. And she can't help you with that. She could be a virgin and you're still going to have those insecurities. Okay. But you got to stop blaming her for those insecurities. Her sexual history is not why you feel insecure. You felt insecure before you met her. Okay. And now you're just projecting that onto her history. Her history is not a threat to you. Your insecurity is the threat. The fact that you don't see yourself as valuable as a partner is the most likely thing to sabotage a relationship far more likely than her interest in sexuality. Okay. Um, now the cure to this is just pure honesty, but honesty with yourself. You know, you can't say to her, like, your sexual history makes me insecure because it doesn't. You're insecure before you got to her. So her sexual history can't be blamed for that. What you can say is, I have insecurity. You know, I'm always worried that I'm not going to be valuable enough as a partner. You know, when somebody has a history like yours, it flares up. I think, oh, my God, other guys have pleased her so much. I'm, you know, I'm not going to be good enough. And just talk about that with her. You know, let her in. And when she talks back, listen. When she says, no, I like you. You're good enough for me. Assume she's not fucking lying. All right? Let her say that and let yourself receive it. Don't fight against it. You know, when your mind starts playing all those fantasies of her being with other guys, just think, good for her. You know, I'm the lucky one who's at the end of that chain who gets all the experience and all the wisdom. The reason that she's so caring and, and good in bed is because of that experience. You know, thank you to all those people that helped her learn and thank god she's a girl who knew how to enjoy life you can keep reframing those fantasies as they come up rather than being like oh my god i bet she's been fucked by so many guys and be like man she's had a really great life you know and now i get to be with her after she's got all that experience i'm lucky which is true you really are like i said i've got other resources on this so i'd suggest checking that out but Honestly, what I'm saying is your problem has nothing to do with her sexual history. It's got nothing to do with her at all. Your problem is self-confidence. When you believe that you're a valuable enough partner that somebody wouldn't want to cheat on you, their history won't matter to you, okay? Because their history doesn't actually tell you anything objectively about them. It will depend on each person. Somebody could be a virgin and still be a total fuck-up, right? And somebody could have slept with every guy they've ever met and be totally healthy and confident. That is possible. Not likely necessarily, but possible. Okay. But sexually shameless can usually mean good things. Even if they started doing it for traumatic reasons or for insecure reasons, eventually they may have just become someone who's secure with it. Now, personal opinion time. In my, in just opinion, this is not fact in any way, in my opinion, there are the people who want to be promiscuous while being in a relationship, the non-monogamy model of relationship. I struggle with this one for the main reason that everyone I've met who's into polygamy seems to be doing it for fucked up reasons. That's all. It's just anecdotal evidence. It doesn't prove anything. 
but you know, I've, I've known or, or been with people who don't believe in monogamy. Lots of them, and they have polygamous relationships. They go to swingers clubs, or they get people off the internet. And what struck me is they always seem to have a kind of obsessive reason for doing this. They're not just like, oh, let's have a bit of fun and I don't get jealous. It's more like I need to see someone fuck my wife and I need sex all the time. And it's just this kind of darkness to why they're doing it. I don't know where I'm going with that. It's just, I have to be as honest as possible, of course, to live by my values. And I'm yet to meet someone who's into polygamy for any reasons that I consider to be healthy. You know, they, especially people that go to like sex retreats and stuff and they just fuck a bunch of strangers while their partner watches and all that. I don't have anything wrong with that morally. If you're doing it for the right reasons, fucking fill your boots. I just haven't met anyone who's doing it for the right reasons yet. I really haven't. I haven't met anyone who's convinced me like, wow, they're just free and open. They always just seem to be like, you know, daddy never hugged me and now I've got to fuck everybody. Or, you know, I need men to see that my girlfriend's hot and I only believe that if they fuck her in the ass. You know, it's, it's just never seemed right to me. I don't know why I threw that one in there. I'm just ranting at this point. Um, but it's time to start wrapping it up. But Chris, speaking to you personally, you know, I know you've had this issue where you hold your potential partners to very high standards that they can't meet and you eventually reject them because of that. And I can see this happening again, this self-sabotage of a relationship. I'm not saying that this girl's right for you. Maybe she's a total nut job. I don't know. But what I am saying is that your problem with her and other girls in your past are not about the girls. They're you. You understand? They're your confidence problems that need to be sorted. And I'm talking from experience as well. I used to be really like threatened by a girl's sexual history. I, I wouldn't mind her being promiscuous if I had no plans of being in a relationship with her. But if I was in a relationship with her, all of a sudden her exes were like a huge threat to me and I was worried about guys hitting on her and stuff. I became very jealous. And that doesn't happen anymore because I've changed. It's not that, you know, <laughs> plenty of people hit on my girlfriend, uh, my wife, and um, her ex is like one of her best friends. You know, there's a lot of potential jealousy triggers going on there, but I just don't really feel it anymore. No more than just protecting her when some guy gets out of line because I don't feel threatened by them anymore. They don't have, they're not my competition. You know, they can't compete with me. I'm a fucking awesome partner. You know, they, they don't have a chance. But I've, I've proven that to myself. I've built that. Whereas before I knew that they really were a threat because I wasn't a great partner. I was needy and, and greedy and controlling and too nice. And I was easy pickings for someone who wanted to steal a girlfriend. And that's what bothered me. That wasn't about my girl. It was about me. I wasn't the, the valuable partner that would uh, be secure in a relationship. I'm not saying that you're not. I'm saying you don't think of yourself as, as valuable. You don't see yourself as worth staying with and worth being loyal to. Because if you did, you wouldn't be worried about their history. There would be no threat. Other guys wouldn't be a threat to you if you were worth staying with in your own mind. And I think you probably are worth staying with. You just got to find a way to believe it. All right. Thank you all for sending your questions through. I'll be doing these more often. Uh, in the future, I'm going to restrict the questions just to contributing members, people who um, donate financially to Grow Brojo. Uh, but the recordings will always be available to all members, including the free members. If you want to become a contributing member, it's as little as $20 a month US and you get access not only to having your questions answered, but of course all the higher level courses and Brojo and lots more intensive support from the coaches. 
So if you want to do that, please do. Um, the brojo.org slash contribute if you want to do that. Otherwise, enjoy the free content. That's fine as well. I'll see you guys next time. Cheers.